Hello everyone, we are live, we are live uh, with uh, the team of Let's Talk It Over. Um, it's been a while actually, our last show was in July, so I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've missed you. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, as you've seen, as you can see, there's a, a, a new member of the team, um, AJ Temelkuran. And I hope I pronounce your surname right, AJ. I know AJ is AJ because you told me. Um, and <laughs> I'm personally video. super happy to, uh, to me have too. you. Me too, me too. As, as part of the team. Thank you. Um, and, I, I think, and, and I think you know everyone on the panel a yeah. little bit or more than a little bit or very well, I think. So, um, That's not so yes, it's... Uh, <laughs> we are yes. down the pub. We are down the pub, Frank. Just remember that. We are we are down the pub. I'm actually drinking uh, water here. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But yeah, it's it's a, it's amazing, AJ, to have um, that. You know, we uh, I'm so happy to that you've accepted to be part of the team. And Yanis, um, uh, Brian, yeah. Roger, if you want to say anything. Yeah, well, well, let me see. Let me just say that Martin was saying a Greek, a Turk. An Englishman, a Frenchman, and a half Belgian are walking into a pub. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was thinking that. We're like a joke now. Like, <laughs> and then the Frenchman walks into a bar. <laughs> what's funny about that, Brian? What's funny about that? I don't well, all the jokes start like that. You'll start like that. Thank God Edge is here to, to explain to me. Well, the half Belgian on its own is a joke. <laughs> 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 yeah, all right. Oh, let's, let's not start uh, talking by, about by the way. and his bloody spandex trousers and riding bicycles and French fries and all the other things that <laughs> Belgians are well known for. Because we'd be here all bloody day. We would never get to whatever it is that we're going to talk about, would we? Correct. We're going to talk about. So to, oh, to, to give to give AJ. Uh, to give AJ a proper introduction for, for those who, who don't know enough about AJ, she's a, an award-winning Turkish novelist and political commentator. Your, your work and your journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The New Statement, and, and many other publications. You are the author of many books, including um, the internationally acclaimed How to Lose a Country, that uh, I know Brian has read, at least. Um, and that, um, and so that's that's AJ for you for you all. But I mean, what, what we're here to talk about tonight is the um, sort of the global climate crisis, and um, and the which is probably the most crucial issue we are facing as human civilization really i don't want to be too dark or anything but but it is it's you know we human survival is going to depend of what we do about about this in the next few years um the cop 26 sort of just finished uh, i know brian you were at the cop 26 and uh, it's going to be important i think to talk about the good things 
that happened at the COP26 because we know all the bad things from the so-called political leaders and stuff. But I'm sure that you've had also some amazing experiences with actually activists and things like that. Yanis, I know you told me you refused to go, so it'd be good to hear about this as well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention, actually, that in the second part of the show, so in about 30 minutes, we will be joined by uh, Deepti Batnagar. She's um, an activist, um, climate, uh, you know, global warming, uh, from friend, Friends of the Earth, and Aruna Shaker, who is a journalist and writes for Car Carbon Brief. So they'll join us in about yeah, 25, 30 minutes. But... Enough of me. Yanis, you are actually have, um, have picked the title of the show. Um, why did you sort of want to put the emphasis on, on big business? Because they are the vandals. They're the ones who are vandalizing the world. Uh, look, uh, there are three main reasons why we're destroying the planet. One is uh, the, the standard uh, the kind of free riding everybody trying to free ride on everybody else. Let somebody else solve the problem, not us. The second one is a coordination problem, you know, matching resources to, to needs. But the main reason why we're destroying the planet is a one-word explanation, capitalism. You know, for 200 years now, everything that was good was commodified, including part of the human soul. Um, all the bads that um, the same production process generated were released into the atmosphere. Because think about it, you know, carbon that was stored for millennia in trees and under the surface was plundered to power the machinery, to power the manufacturing. Uh, so immense wealth and uh, a lot of poverty, of course, was produced by this capitalist machine, uh, a process of depleting free natural capital. Uh, you, you, because, you see, they don't pay for it. The private cost, the cost to businesses of burning coal is tiny compared to the cost to the planet, to humanity as a whole. So effectively, they're getting a free ride for 200 years. And now workers around the world, especially in the developing world, will have to pay the cost to nature that the capitalist class never paid globally. Uh, you know, Mark Carney went to, uh, to Glasgow um, maybe, Brian, you had dinner with him. Uh, Mark Carney was the governor of the Bank of England. And he's, he actually, I know him. He's a, he's a very pleasant chap. But he, there, he came there representing global finance. And he said, the money is here. I am representing asset managers uh, worth $130 trillion, $130 trillion. The money is here. Yes, of course it's there. If society as a whole is prepared to pay the financiers, for their money. Yes, they will, they will be quite happy to supply it. But we need to remember, that's how I conclude, that they shall not cease voluntarily from producing stuff whose production entails releasing CO2 in the air. Uh, they will not stop doing this until we take their toys away from them. Their toys, of course, are the means of production. Unless capitalism is... Um, put it in its place, which effectively is, you know, in a tiny little box somewhere. Uh, I don't think we can save this planet. And they proved this. Biden arrived empty-handed in Glasgow. The European Union has a supposed, supposedly a green deal, but there's no, no money in it. And Germany is producing lignite-powered um, power stations as we speak. 
So yes, big business has uh, jeopardized that one of the last chances we have to save the planet. That's why they love net zero, because net zero gives them a license to, to burn the remaining stocks of carbon. Capitalism is the problem, folks. Here, here. I, I, I wanted to, oh, sorry, Roger, go. Here, here, he's right, of course. And, and actually, we can, we can speak till we're blue in the face about climate issues, but it will always come back to the great truth that Yanis has just laid on the table in front of us. So maybe we can come back to, late, to that later, because I'm fascinated to hear what Brian has to say about uh, COP26. I wasn't there. I know very little about it except what I've read. And I don't read the news much, so I, I know so little about it. So could, can we hear from Brian? I'd really be interested to hear what happened, Brian. Sure. So I was. I, I was actually going to. Yeah. No, I was okay. going to pass the mic on to you, Brian, before you started to speak, Roger. <laughs> well, hang on a minute. I'm. This is the fucking pub, Frank. I'm not going to wait for you to say, "Ooh, can we hear from the old lanky prick in the corner with his kind of miles?" I, if I want to say something, I bloody well will. All right. Thank you. Go on, Brian. Sorry, so, mate. Sorry, Frank. Sorry, Eche. No. Sorry, Alice. <laughs> it's so hard. It's a pub, you know. Don't have to say sorry. Yeah, when the woman comes, it's Frank. weird. <laughs> hey, hey, Frank, I know that. I know I don't have to say sorry, all right? I am a bloke in a pub. I don't have to say sorry to you or the barman or anybody else or the bloody landlord or... <laughs> exactly. Or the company that owns a pub. Go exactly. on, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> You know, except all the brewery, too, you know. I'm sorry, I'm too polite to interrupt, so <laughs> unless somebody starts talking, you'll never hear a word from me. Um, so I was I was there for the second week of COP, not the first one. So the first week was when most of the official stuff happened, but there was still a lot of it remaining, the residue of it when I got there. And what um what I came away thinking was some of the most amazing people on, on earth have gathered here to talk to each other. And mostly they aren't talking to each other very much. So the activists were all talking to the activists and the official delegations were all talking to the official delegations. And there was very little crossover between them, which was quite disappointing. And there was something else as well. I really started to doubt whether anybody was very serious about the whole thing because the, the quality of some of the arguments was so tragically bad. Um, and I was trying to think of an analogy. So let's say we're in a boat and it's starting to sink and somebody starts bailing out the water with a bucket. Great, he's got a bucket. And then somebody else in the boat says, oh, but it's a plastic bucket. Plastic isn't sustainable. It, it was just ridiculous. Some of the arguments were so stupid. And, and I felt that I feel that way about a lot of the envir environmental arguments that we just don't have the sense of scale right. You know, okay, in an ideal world, we would use a nicely made zinc bucket or wooden, perhaps even better. But the fucking only thing we've got is a plastic bucket and the boat is sinking. So are we going to listen to some PC cunt who says, oh, it's a plastic bucket? And 
and it was the same about people talking about each other. You know, there were people there who obviously had a great deal of knowledge and some clever ideas and some good convictions, but people were kind of cancelling each other because that person was a Tory. So it doesn't matter what his ideas are. We can't talk to them. Um, there was a very brilliant report prepared called the National Food Strategy, National Food Plan. But it was headed up by a guy called Henry Dimbleby, who, of course, being a Dimbleby, was seen as part of the English establishment. So none of the activists would take it seriously. But actually, it's a really good report. So what I kept thinking was, wouldn't it have been great if everybody at this bloody place had had to read Eche's last book together? Because really, it's we have to make this realization that we, we're going to have to compromise. We're going to have to work with people we don't agree with very much sometimes that we don't even like. We're going to have to use technologies that we might be a little bit icky about, you know. Um, but this, we can't afford to be so selective about everything and to be so absolutely right on about everything before we move. We've got to be moving now, really. So that was the disappointing part, that, that I felt there was a, a completely unbridged gulf between the insiders, the official invitees, and the outsiders, the activists. Um, and this manifested in lots of ways. For instance, you know how difficult it is to get somebody from, say, Sri Lanka or Tasmania to Glasgow, the hotel rooms, the bookings of the flights, all of that kind of thing. Finally, they're there. And they're talking, but the mic doesn't work. And nobody's fixing the mic. This is just insane, you know, that there seems to be such an absence on, on the activist part about actually communicating. It was, it was as though people thought, I'm so obviously right that I don't actually need a microphone. You know, people will just get it because I'm right. And there was a sort of arrogance in both the activist position and the official positions, actually, um, which re we really need to lose a bit more humility. So there were some good, there were lots of good things. There were lots of things that seemed to promise that if we address this climate problem, we will not only deal with that, but we will come up with a better world altogether, because we'll be dealing with a lot of issues about inequality and about people's rights and so on and so on that need to be dealt with but okay that's it from me well brian doesn't we were supposed to be on stage with brian in barcelona uh, very soon <laughs> it was cancelled due to uh, covid situation so we had a chat about cope and now he's not saying it out of his you know, humbleness and kindness, but actually he fixed the microphone, as far as I know, <laughs> during yes. that meeting. And then he called this Roddy's, and then he <laughs> organized a Roddy sort of mobilization to help the activists. These are practical things, but I'm, I'm afraid you're right. It comes from the arrogance that, you know, we are right, we are telling the truth, we are mention, you know, we are referring to the facts, so everybody should be, like, convinced. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, we're living in a world where facts do not convince people. And I think, you know, this emotional part of the story, emotional and politics of emotions part of the story 
should be really handled properly by the progressives, by the climate activists, because not everybody responds to fear and apocalyptic narrative as we want them to respond. Yeah. It's like they hide, they reject, they they go in, on, in denial and so on. So we have to find a way to manage these mass emotions as well. Um, so yeah, practical side of it is uh this is also this is a very practical thing like you know we have to em manage the emotions so that they can go out and you know plastic or tin or wood what whatever they can they start you know uh saving the boat but i think um there is also i'm like we talked about this with brian earlier uh but lack of friendliness as well i mm -hmm. guess not only towards uh so towards the big powers, which I'm not expecting, but among the among the progressives, among the mm, among the activists, so to speak. So this is another politics of emotion problem. Uh, I guess we have we will have to deal with because yeah, we have to enlarge the front. We cannot mm -hmm. do this on our own. It's a massive problem. So we need everyone, actually, unfortunately. Yeah. But the part of the story, what I see is the young people they're remo removing their consent i don't know what you think yanis you are more you know active you're talking more with you know young people but they're removing their consent from capitalism you know the concepts of power rich and you know all these things that were you know worshipped in 1980s is no more cute or uh, appreciated. I, I feel that happening, not only among the politicized young people, but also outside that politicization, there is this removal of consent from capitalism. So I am expecting some generational crisis very soon, like in a few years, actually, especially in Europe. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. The evidence doesn't support that, does it? What we're seeing happening in countries that purport to be democratic where people are going to the vote is for instance in chile at the moment there's the second round of the presidential election is coming up in what seven days six days five days time and uh, all, all accounts i'm not sure i'm finding it very difficult to get any cogent information out of chile at the moment i don't know what the polls are saying but the first round was run by a man called cast who's an out and out downright nazi you know, and he just is. His great hero is Adolf Hitler. This is the guy, and he look. He he's in a position to win a presidential election in Chile. So where are the young people who are saying no to capitalism, or do people not equate capitalism with fascism? If you see what oh, I they mean. don't. Oh, of, of course well, they don't. Well, then okay. So that so then we come. This is interesting because you're you you were saying that they're rejecting capitalism, but what they're not making a connection between capitalism and fascism. The well, two are were... inextricably linked, in my view. That's only that's only in my view. Um, all right, I'll I'll butt out again, but I think it's interesting because when you were talking and listening to Brian talking as well, and when to Brian talking about COP26, two things occurred in my brain. One, I want to know what the food plan is because I wasn't there and I didn't hear it, but it sounds fascinating. And if Brian thinks it's important, it bloody well is important. 
All right. That's what that that's kind of one thing. And the other thing is that constantly in my head, it goes, nothing has any teeth. All right. It's quite clear in the world that we live in that we, the people of the world, don't give a fuck about human rights or the law. It's quite so it's happening all around us. You know, I I was making speeches on Second Avenue at lunchtime yesterday about Julian Assange. Nobody gives a shit that this is completely illegal against everything that we pretend to believe in when we talk about democracy, freedom and the law. So so it's fascinating to hear you talk about young people. It'd be fascinating to see whether a generation might be persuaded to demand recourse to the law for themselves, if not for all the poor people in the world who have never had recourse to the law. And although in 1789 or whenever, you know, the French started telling us that their revolution was actually about granting recourse to the law, to the Saint-Goulot, it hasn't happened. There is still no recourse to any law because the capitalists that Yanis talks about and the people who represent them in the governments of the Western nations, right, don't care about the people they care about the capitalists that is who they represent all of them you know across the board that's what it's a very the overton window i know that's about discussion normally but the window of government is very very narrow you're only actually allowed to uh represent the rich and the power shut up again but Brian, thank you for all of that. Just, just a, very a quick, illuminating to me. A quick intervention, Roger. Let's not talk about an edge. Let's not talk about the young as if they are a homogeneous lot. Yeah, good. Yeah, they are, they are no, young yes. socialists yeah. and increasing numbers of them. There are young fascists. Don't, don't let's not forget. Let's not you know huge numbers. Young fascists, and there are young who worry about climate change, but have been schooled to think of capitalism like fish think of the water. That is, they exactly. don't see it. They're swimming in it, and they take it as a given. Mm. Uh, yeah. What we need to do is we need to explain, firstly, the association between fascism and capitalism. Exactly. Fascism is what rears its ugly head when capitalism has a crisis and there's any chance of a progressive left-wing revolt against it. This is what happened in the 1920s and 30s. This is what happened in Greece in, 90, in 2011. The, uh, we, they need to understand that these, the, you know, fascism is like a cancer growth that grows on capitalism when liberal democracy produces any chance that capitalist interests will be jeopardized by progressives. Uh, Exactly. Um, and, and, and when it comes to climate change, you know, we have to clear their minds of the bullshit about net zero. They have to understand that when the governments tell them, oh, you know, we are going to reach net zero in 2030, 40, 50, this is crap. What they are telling them essentially is this. We are going to keep pumping the shit out of the air. We know what the damage is. This is tangible. It's certain. And at the same time, we're going to do some offsets. You know, we'll go to Ecuador and buy some forests and, and, and plant a few more genetically modified trees. So you have no idea how long these forests would last for, what kind of offsets they will actually create. It's a bit like Philip Morris trying to stop the end of smoking 
in pubs, since we are in a pub, by insisting on ventilation rather than on a ban on smoking. That's what net zero is. It's in the interest of capitalists. They will use fascists to kill those who, um, who try to close down their minds. Uh, even, even, even the financial mechanism by which net zero is achieved is crap. Because think about it. Um, look, look at Rio Tinto in Australia, right? They, they, it wasn't good for their image to have some coal mines. So the, they gave them up. They divested. Sounds good. No, it's not. Because then even worse operators took over and continued to extract coal and burn it even under worse conditions than Rio Tinto. So it's not just, you know, let's not look just at particular companies. The whole thing, it's a totality of evil that needs to be addressed. And the youngs, the young must understand that they can't be fashionable in their struggle. They have to do unfashionable things. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. They have to become uh, a pain in the ass if they're going to win anything. But they also have to understand, if I may say, you cannot cherry pick human rights. You can't yeah. have human rights for yourself, but deny them to other people. That's right. That's right. And the fundamental platform that is enshrined in, in 1789 and in 1948 is that that is, that is our passcard to the future is the idea, not the idea, the implementation of the idea of equal human rights for all our brothers and sisters all over the world, irrespective of their race, creed, color, nationality, blah, 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 blah. That is our passport to tomorrow. But it has to be implemented by international human humanitarian law. Nothing is implemented by the law. The international courts of justice have no power over the veto in, uh, you know, in the permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations, i.e. the United States, uh, Great Britain, France, uh, China, and Russia. They, they, the five of them, say yes, or mainly the United States now, because it's so much more powerful than everybody else, just says, we're not interested in the law, you do what we say or we'll kill you. And this is the world that we live in. And they're, so they're killing us. And they're doing it by burning coal, as you said, or now biomass, burning fucking trees, even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it's right. I'm not sorry. I'm a hub. <laughs> Excuse me. Look, I'm not, hey, Brian, I'm not drinking out of a plastic mug, so we're all right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's there young. I'm like, obviously, they're not homogeneous, and I'm not thinking that suddenly they're all becoming socialists and so on. But, you know, none of us is young here, by the way, so we are speaking on behalf of them, which is quite dangerous, especially with this generation. But uh, they are removing their consent from capitalism because of a factual situation, because they cannot have anything anymore. They are the generation that won't have, you know, properties, they, that won't have proper salaries. Uh, and they are already mourning for the things that will be lost on the planet. They're mm -hmm. already in mourning for the planet. So they are removing that consent uh, on a massive scale. It depends on us, actually, where that consent will go. Uh, the problem is they cannot connect with capitalism, uh, uh, capitalism with fascism, because they 
heard these stories of, you know, totalitarianism can only come from communist states. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they read 1980-40 thinking that this could only happen, you know, in Soviet Union and so on. And fascism can only appear in boots and jacket, hockey jackets and so on. <laughs> so they cannot understand that you know, behind these entertaining form of right-wing populism, there is actually fascism, and fascism is innate in capitalism. So uh, it is our job, I think, to explain that and to make the connection between climate change and climate crisis and and capitalism. So it's a hard job because we have this, you know, massive uh, propaganda machine still working properly, uh, and now... taking uh, the support from right-wing, the leaders that we call right-wing populists. How could they not have noticed, Ece, that we're living in the fucking Weimar Republic? That that was not a left-wing regime that suddenly started the Second World War and, and almost destroyed the planet, you know, single-handedly. <laughs> it's right before their eyes. It's quite clear. The model is there for all young people to see. Well, How can okay. they possibly be believing that the only tyrannies are the USSR and China and anything that might not follow the neoliberal capitalist model. It seems bizarre. But, I mean, and, and yet, I believe too much distraction, you. I would say. Too much distraction. I'm like the other week in, in London, for instance, everybody was talking about Christmas party, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson's Christmas party, whereas the problem was the law passing from the parliament. So uh, mm-hmm. too much distraction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, you're right, of course. It's distraction. And, one, and one of the interesting. Sorry, go on, bro. Sorry, one of the things that was encouraging about um, COP was that there were at least forty thousand, mostly young people there, because it was a huge number who turned up, who weren't part of the official thing, who don't swallow the story at all. So those are people who are fairly clear about where the problem originates from and. The word capitalism came up a lot. Um, so my problem wasn't with their understanding of how the situation had come into being. I think people pretty much agreed about that. What they didn't agree about, as always with the left, was how we, how we co- cooperate in doing anything about it. It was the absence of any willing, willingness to compromise that seemed to me the, the death of our movement, really. You know, people. Because this is a plug for the Progressive International. This is a plug for the Progressive International. Yes. (laughs) You know, because this is what we're—it's the only show in town. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Join the Progressive International, folks. I want to hear what Yanis is saying because I don't understand what he's saying. What are you saying? We, you know, some years ago, Bernie Sanders and I inaugurated something we called the Progressive International. Now the Progressive International has 200 million members and we're doing things internationally. We, we start small. But we've we never a, heard of you. I've never, never heard of you. You haven't, but you know, we had a, on Black Friday, Roger, you'll be pleased to hear that, we staged an international rolling strike, which began in Vietnam, went to Cambodia, from there to Bangladesh, from Bangladesh to India, from India to Germany and to Sweden, from there to New Jersey and from there to Seattle, Washington State, um, targeting Amazon warehouses. Uh, and, the, uh, and the hashtag was make Amazon pay. 
that was the first global rolling strike that we started. Um, we, you know, we have a large number of uh, organizations that are part of this, Extinction Rebellion part of this. It is an attempt to do that which bankers and fascists know how to do, unite mm -hmm. transnationally. Well, yeah. thank you for explaining that. I'm so glad to hear it. And by the way, you did get to me. I did see Make Amazon Pay. It was in front of me at some point. There you are. You know, whatever. So congratulations yeah, on that. <laughs> and, and but then Yanni said, I mean, like, obviously we're not doing a great job if Roger doesn't know about Progressive International. No, it doesn't matter because he knows Make Amazon Pay. He knows the campaign. The campaign is what matters. Our mug faces are not important. What matters no, is I, the speakers that are coordinated. I think you're so wrong about that because, you know, I know about Vieme Cosipende because I've followed, you know, you know, I've read your I've read your writings and I've yeah. followed what you do and Brian as well and blah 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 who's involved in that particular initiative. But listening about COP is like these forty thousand young people need to find leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And and if they need to find young leaders, for God's sake, find one or two or or a committee or or something. Because Greta Thornburg, bless her, ain't it. You know, it's too easy to sideline the green peace line. And with all respect to Greenpeace, I don't mean to, um, but you hear what I'm saying? It's no good just go bleating on about climate change. What, what you're telling me about a rolling strike against Amazon.com, now that is exciting. And that is something, if, if I, I mean, I, I'm fucking old. I would go, I'll come the next time there is one. I'll turn up on the side of the street and, you know, I will be boots on the ground, just like I was with the 100 people on 2nd Avenue yesterday. I'm, I'm taking note of this, right? I mean, yeah, you're yeah, on. Do. No, do, brother. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. Friends. I'm, um, I'm really happy I'm to sorry to. It. it was worth coming sorry down to interrupt. tonight. What? But we, we're talking about the. We are talking about the youth. We're talking about leaders. Um, Deepti Batnagar, she's now, um, you know, in the waiting room. Joanne, can you let Deepti in? Hey, Deepti is joining us from Mozambique. Yeah, welcome, Deepti. Welcome, Deepti. This has welcome, been fascinating. Deepti. I've been listening. Yeah. Good. And and you have it. So. Deep Tea, uh, just to, a brief introduction. Deep Tea, you are the International Program Coordinator for Climate Justice and Energy um, at Friends of the Earth Mozambique. Um, you also work on, on climate justice and dirty energy. That's right, right? Yes. I work with Friends of the Earth International and Justice Ambiental, which is Friends of the Earth here in Mozambique. I'm in Maputo right now. I'm really happy you actually listened to the first part of the show because, as you heard, um, a lot of old people have spoken about the young people <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, I just want just... to... It's a joke. It's one of Frank's jokes. <laughs> he's only saying this because he doesn't know how old I am. I could be in the old camp too. No, you're not. <laughs> no. No, you're not. There is Deepy, I just want to ask you... The world. Sorry, I, I want to ask you something, actually. We, we, we've been talking about um, 
the youth, and we've been talking about AJ, you mentioned facts that, you know, facts don't really matter anymore and stuff. I, I was wondering what you think about this, Adipti, because my thinking is that maybe the facts are so overwhelming and so, um, you know, we're talking about the end of human civilization, right? That the mountain is so, it's too big to climb. So people rather just continue their daily life and forget about it. Because when you, you know, COP26 was all about keeping the world under 1.5 degrees Celsius, the UN issued a report right after COP26 saying that under the, the wait, I've got the right stuff here. So, uh, yeah, under, under today's emission pledges, we are set for 2.7 rise. Um, a 2.7 rise really would mean nightmare on earth. That's as simple as that. You know, more tornadoes, more floods, more, you know, the massive fires we've seen in Australia would happen sort of every year. So don't you think there's a part of it that is so overwhelming and in a way scary that people would rather just forget about it? I don't know what you think about that, Deepti. I think you're right, Frank. That is definitely what is happening. And it's, it's robbing people's agency, right? Because they're being told this story about climate catastrophe without figuring out, okay, what is their entry point into it? I won't lie. The climate crisis is real. It's very, very serious. But it isn't the only crisis in town, right? The, there are people who are facing multiple interrelated crises, and that's important to understand as well. So here in Mozambique, 70% of people do not have access to electricity. We're facing an inequality crisis, which you all have been talking about. The richest 5% of people on the planet have emitted 37% of carbon emissions from 1990 to 2015. So what it means is we need to be looking at not just the climate crisis, but also all the other crises, right? And we need to be taking the lead, not just from young people, but from frontline communities. So definitely young people are very much needing to be in this conversation because this planet is going to be left to them to, to do what with, a, you know, leave behind a burning planet. But it's not just about the future. It's also about the past. This is about 500 years of colonialism and slavery, which is what this current moment has brought us to. It's all of that history, genocide, that has brought us to this current moment. And if we ignore that history, we're not going to be able to find solutions for the future. And that's what you've been talking about, right? The young people are need to understand that what, it is, what is it about the capitalist system, the extractivist system that has brought us to this point. And hence, the solutions that we need to create for the future need to be very, very different. And going back to your question, Frank, really, it, this is about people power. And our work is on movement building and to, so that people feel like they have that agency. They can resist that coal mine that comes to their community. They can resist the net zero project. I'm so happy to hear Yanis talk about that net zero is going to be another scheme just to allow polluters to continue polluting. That is exactly what it's for. And this is a problem. And we need to be able to, to be be able to give people agency to say you can actually fight this and you have a voice to be able to to fight this even if your community is on the front lines and and you know completely affected and devastated by what's going on by climate change but there's a way ahead and we need to build the way ahead and it's absolutely crucial because there are people's lives at stake not just in the future but today you know that's that's what wakes me up every morning to be like okay we got to do our work we got to do what we can we have to do what we can because justice is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Is, is Can I say some? Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead, Go. Um, no, uh, I, I just I was just watching Euronews, and you know there is a current issue about Mozambique, and with you know a case I think about the you know. So you you were actually very right when you brought colonialism into this because it is still uh, connected to some sort of new form of colonialism. So would you like to expand on that? Uh, sorry, Yanis, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Absolutely. So the the um, so the largest uh, gas field found anywhere in the last ten years has been found offshore northern Mozambique, of the province of Cabo Delgado, just under Tanzania. And ever since that's happened, there's been a huge gas rush. So many many countries, the export credit agencies, the companies, uh, Exxon Mobil, Eni, etc., are involved here. Sasol, also from our neighbor, our you know sort of colonial neighbor, South Africa. So what is happening is that Friends of the Earth in the UK, Friends of the Earth in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland have taken their government to court, uh, the United Kingdom Export Finance, which has agreed to give a billion dollars to the Mozambique Gas Project, has been taken to court by Friends of the Earth in the UK to say, why are you doing this? Because this is not consistent with climate goals, but also it's causing devastation on the ground. I think the important thing is that, you know, we oppose dirty energy projects on the ground. Our, our communities, our allies are opposing uh, extractivist projects all over the world, not just because it causes climate change, but because it devastates the local ecology, it devastates people's lives and livelihoods. So what is happening here in Mozambique is that this gas rush that has been provoked is causing a huge amount of conflict and insurgency. It's really horrible what has been happening in the north of Mozambique. It's really heartbreaking. And at the same time, it's, you know, people's lives and livelihoods are being being taken away. And this is what is happening all over the world where dirty energy projects are being, you know, are, are being laid out all over the place. So so we hope that so that there was a court case from the 7th to the 9th of December in London, which was about stopping this finance for Mozambique gas because of course, our country needs energy. I just finished saying that 70% of our people do not have access to electricity, but the gas is not going to be the way they have it. The gas is the same old colonial project, to use your word. It's taking the gas from the source or, or offshore and taking it away from this continent, right? The whole old colonial model. So we, we want a different future for our people. We want renewable energy. We want renewable energy that is in the hands of people socially owned renewable energy systems. We want a conversation about energy consumption in the North and also the Southern elites. These are the, these are the things that we need to be talking about. We need that transformation of the energy system and we need wider system change. That's what we're calling for as Friends of the Earth International. And we need to be thinking about the principles of that energy system that we want to see. So that it's not just about okay, let's remove coal and put a put a you know a, a solar farm. There are communities in India where I was born that are fighting against large-scale solar farms because why? It's taking away their lives, their lands, their livelihoods, and it's being treated as just another you know it, it's just like a coal mine for 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 their purposes. It's just like a coal mine because it's affecting their livelihoods and because they're not included in the benefits of that project. So we need to be re-envisioning our energy system in a very, very different way. That's a little bit of the work that we're trying to do, but there's so much more still to be done.
Can I can I say something? I I just want to we uh, we have about 20 minutes left and I think it's important to 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 emphasize the potential solutions, right? Or, or the way forward. Um, I was re I read a report that says that researchers they discovered that uh, a critical sort of threshold was passed when the size of a com committed minority reached roughly 25% of the population. Apparently at this point social conventions suddenly flip. So how do we actually manage to build a movement that is already quite, quite big, but make it into, into sort of 25% apparently of the sort of the worldwide, I guess, population? Um, is it education? Is it, because I think, again, like telling people you need to act on global warming because I look at this massive fire, scares people it's like when you you say people you need to go to be against war because look kids are getting their heads cut off it's, it's actually puts you know sort of puts people away so uh, brian you want to say something yes thank you um i think one way that we can start to engage people is by stopping being so bloody snobbish about this whole thing so one of the things that has happened in the last couple of years is lots and lots of books have come out with titles like 39 Ways to Save the Planet or The Trillion Dollar Dream or all, all sorts of ideas about how we could address this problem. And they are almost universally disliked by left-wing intellectuals because they don't deal with structural problems. Okay, well, I agree, we do have to deal with structural problems, but that doesn't mean that in the meantime, we stop overlooking technical solutions. There's such a hatred of technology um, among intellectuals, this feeling of, oh, that's just technology, that doesn't solve the problem at all. But actually, there are technical solutions as well. And for me, nuclear power is one of them. Um, you know, the, the total snobbery about nuclear power is, is ridiculous, I think. Um, that's another argument. Perhaps one night, perhaps one night down the pub, we can talk about that. That would be. Well, I'd like to talk about it now because I, <laughs> I, I would die if I don't. Sorry, I should um, have. I shouldn't have mentioned it because now the rest. No, of you're sure. You're sure. You you because won't be taken up. He's we are at the pub. Free. We mention anything that pops into our head. Okay. Look, I'll, I'll be quick. Look, I agree with you. Technology is important. It's crucial. We need to love technology, but there are technologies that are technologies. So I, I, I'll take something Dipti said. Dipti, you talked about, you alluded to, and I'm very glad you did, to the importance of technologies that are decentralized and which are um, prone, they have a propensity towards uh, being communally owned. Ownership is everything, you know. I'll stick to my guns. Everything is about capitalism. Ending the private ownership by the one percent of the one percent of everything. Yeah? If you, if you, if you, if you, when we moved from coal to oil, we moved to a technology that was anti-trade union because it involved a, few, a lot of fewer people. If you look at a nuclear power station, forget about the fact that it's not renewable and that you've got waste and you have the danger and the risk and that. A nuclear power station is top-down by definition. It's a huge investment. It requires lots of security guards, which means a security state, right? Um, 
And it is the opposite of what the societies, the communities in Mozambique, in Greece, in Scotland need, which is technology, high-tech, small turbines, um, uh, solar panels that can be owned by the community uh, and managed by the community and create good quality green jobs in the community, unlike the nuclear power station. Uh, Tony Benn, one of my great heroes, uh, he was very pro-nuclear, Brian, in the 1960s. And then he became the minister responsible for nuclear power. And he turned completely against it. Why? Two reasons. One is, I remember him talking about this back then. Uh, one reason is that it creates the security state. If you have a nuclear power station that has a capacity to, you know, gen to also produce nuclear weapons or, you know, enrich uranium and so on, it is a wet dream for those who want a state that is oppressive. And the second reason is just too long-term and too inflexible, and the fixed, fixed costs are so great that it is impossible to be owned communally. So yes, we need technologies, but we need to move to a, an ownership model, which is community-based and not either based, you know, owned by the Soviet Union, Gosplan, the big state, or by big business. I'm not going to respond because I want to invite Aruna to say something since she's just a Yeah, I want to. Nice to see you, Aruna. She's Thanks, Brian. I want you to. Uh, oh, somebody's telling me. Welcome, Aruna. So we, we've got. Thank uh, you, so we've got Aruna. Welcome, Aruna. Uh, Chandra nice Shaker. Nice to join us. Aruna, Aruna a, a, a brief intro. So you, you cover land, food systems, and nature at uh, Carbon Brief. You, yes. We are talking now about sort of the solutions, the way forward. You, um, you reported on COP26, and uh, yes. you, you can talk to us in a way about the outcomes of, of, of COP26. And I guess there, there are a lot of ongoing negotiations, right? So as part of the outcome of COP26, do you see potential solutions? Um, I think I'm looking at outcomes and it's been a long series of negotiations. We've been discussing many of these points for a long time. For instance, uh, some of the negotiations, like this is the time where it took nearly four years of negotiations to close the rules on Article 6, which is um, essentially around carbon markets, around offsetting. And it's been one of those issues which has been so hotly debated by states. Now, the fact that you know many states actually did cross their red lines and come to a certain agreements around it. Now, I mean, some of these things are also, I mean, they do present future loopholes, but at the same time, some of them have been ruled out. For instance, there's been a strong emphasis on not allowing for double counting, where a country that, you know, um, uses or counts these credits um, back home as well as the host country don't, um, you can't you know, count this as an emissions reduction on both sides. Um, so there have been certain things which have been hotly contested. Um, there were lots of, like, the first week of COP was really very much about celebrities and was very much about leaders making huge speeches and announcements. Um, so there was that much of the flurry of, of you know, a big deal 
deforestation pledge to end deforestation by um, 2030? How do you get around to it? And what? how are those solutions? How do you, um, like there was also a huge emphasis on nature-based solutions when it's not really clear what those are. Um, it's a very, um, and studies as well as experts say that it's a vague catch-all term. Others say that, you know, um, nature can actually um, account for a large degree of emissions reductions. Others uh, in the, instead say that we shouldn't be asking nature to mop up um, a man-made mess. Um, so there was a huge um, emphasis on that, and eventually it was removed from text because um, the idea of nature being uh, something that doesn't have its own inherent value or, and largely be left to solve humanity's problems. Um, that was something that a lot of countries, like for instance, developing countries such as Bolivia also called um, out on. So, I mean, at, at COP there was, I mean, the Glasgow Climate Pact um, did, and it is unprecedented in certain ways, where at the same time, like there's been a pledge from developed countries to at least double their finance, but at the same time, there hasn't been finance coming through. The 100 billion goal has not been met um, and it was something that really breaks trust. Um, is and developing country parties have can't call this out, saying that how do you trust what's going forward, and for the decade to come where it matters the most, where there is um, clearly been no attempt to meet those finance pledges at all. Um, but then there were also strong calls to talk about what happens now. I mean, uh, what does long-term finance look like? So. I mean, where are we going to be talking about? Like, for instance, again, like Diti's been talking about climate impacts. Like when you get hit by disasters year after year, I'm from India. Um, and again, looking at places that have been devastated year on year. Um, so those sort of... Um, claims and how to, um, so not being able to see that on the table um, was something that, again, is is something like it's it's noted with deep regret in the text that um, of the Glasgow Climate Pact that it hasn't been and they've been urged to fully deliver this through 2025. So yeah, um, those are things that, um, you know, have become the sticking point. And a lot of indigenous groups also argued that, for instance, human rights and free prior informed consent of indigenous communities hasn't been included in these discussions around carbon markets, when essentially, if you're going to do these sort of offsetting projects, that they are at greatest risk. And that's something that also was pushed through while they managed to get an independent grievance mechanism um, and really had to push for that towards the end. Um, that at the same time, human rights is not explicitly mentioned in how these activities will be set up. So there's a lot of um, spaces which, you know, you have to, I mean, things which were professed as solutions um, and as outcomes um, will, of course, have to be further negotiated. But also the fact that we're running out of time and over 40 countries hadn't um, yet updated their pledges, some of them are, who are really major emitters. Um, so yeah, as much as we see, um, as much as some of the stuff, it was surprising that negotiations managed to end and to get the sort of text, it is still, uh, there's a lot of loopholes yet to be fixed. It's all irrelevant. It's rearranging deck chairs to the bloody Titanic. Uh, carbon markets are a scourge. We should move away from the idea that they might be a solution. They are the problem. They need to end today. Carbon markets must be banned. <laughs> the fact that they are even failing to, 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 to agree amongst themselves on how to have them, you know, 
if extraterrestrials were watching, they would have said, oh, come on, guys, you know, just, you know, die. You are, you, you are a virus that needs to be eradicated from that planet. Uh, and carbon yeah. markets and net zero um, is making a virtue out of the problem for propaganda purposes in order to continue to pollute, in order to continue to extract, in order to continue to destroy people's lives. What, um, what option, what do you offer as an alternative to carbon markets? I, uh, I, carbon I, tax. A, a, a carbon tax, a huge carbon tax, which mm -hmm. is not collected by the state, but which is used to redistribute. So if you have one potato or one tomato that is produced using you know diesel in order to heat up the greenhouse and one that is produced sustainably the first one should cost a hundred times more than the second one so it reduce a large tax but that tax must be collected and be redistributed to the poorer of the earth so that those who pollute and the rich pay for the transition and pay in order to have a massive price differential between the things that do harm and the things that don't do harm. But what is the difference between what about, that and the carbon yeah. tax? The, the difference? What's the difference between that and, uh, sorry, and uh, a carbon market? It's a huge difference, gigantic difference. Could not be greater, Brian. You know, you're just giving me an opportunity to answer. But thank you. Um, in a market, what you're saying is you're going to Rio Tinto and you're saying to them, we give you the right to produce into the atmosphere so many millions tons of CO2, right? Mm -hmm. But no more. And if you save some of that, you can save, you can sell the right to pollute to, to that extent to somebody yeah. else and you create a market. So mm -hmm. effectively, you legitimize pollution. And you pretend that the market mechanism will create a price that you leave it to the market to determine that will coordinate our activities as human beings. It won't. We need to specify today that tomorrow morning, you know, anybody who pollutes the air with, you know, a ton of CO2 will have to pay $50. And we need to say that next year is going to be $100. In three years' time, it will be $300. We must fix this price so that everybody knows what the price is. Don't leave it to a market. And to make it clear that it is a bad, because when you create a market, you are turning bads into goods to the extent that people can profit from buying and selling them. It is a philosophical difference. It's a practical difference. And effectively, carbon markets are a license to pollute. But if you... Um... I, I agree with you, by the way. I'm, I am slightly saying this so that you'll explain the position. But um, if you make a carbon tax, aren't you just saying that um, rich people can buy things that are made with a lot of carbon, but poor people can't? Effectively, you you, you don't you haven't um, you still haven't got rid of the problem in a certain sense. You've that that is correct. That is correct. So what and you need to more the tax. What and you also need is quotas. You need quotas as well as a carbon tax. So you need, you need to, set, to set limits to physical growth. You have to say that, you know, you are not going to produce, you know, more than a certain number of tons of cement. So, but a combination of quotas and tariffs, of quotas and taxes, but no market. 
I think I remember, I remember that this is money something. that accumulates to go to the poor, right? What's what's yeah. Ashley want to say? No, no, Aruna was saying. Yeah, something. no, I was just yeah. The question is who who sets the tax and um, how do you get everybody government. to agree to it? And that is which governments? Because again, many commodities. Now, for instance, like uh, the EU has a carbon tax, and that was something that developing countries were also like uh, at the same time that was a bit of a sticking position where you're like, okay, well, goods from these uh, different countries, if we are going to have to pay higher tariffs for it, and then you also want us to set um, ambitious emission reduction targets. Uh, well, so, I'm sorry, well, but it, Europe does not have a carbon tax. It's got an ETS. Yeah, no, it's not the same thing. Yeah, no, it's got of one of those obviously. stupid, horrible carbon markets, which mm -hmm. is partial, partial, only for four, four industries. It's not general. But I take your point about global governance. You need a global yes. governance of the scheme. Okay? So in the same way that you have, you know, they have no problem having the WTO, uh, when it comes to giving rights to multinationals, but they have a problem suddenly uh, coordinating a global carbon tax. And if, if, if the carbon tax is redistributive, as I'm suggesting, you can have a redistribution process from the global north to the global south. So you can have an agreement that the south is going to impose the tax too, but it will be a net beneficiary if the Money that they accumulate from the global carbon tax in the global north, which is going to be a lot more uh, than in the south, is then redistributed. So you, what I'm calling for is a global carbon tax which is redistributed within countries, but also across countries. So in the end, a poor country, you know, in Mozambique, for instance, you'll be net beneficiaries. There will be a, a tax for you know locally produced stuff that is bad for the environment, but Mozambique will collect more from the rest of the world from the global carbon tax than it will give out. But I think but we need to be talking about turning off the fossil tap first and foremost. Yeah. We need to stop emissions at source, right? Not, not compensate exactly. them somewhere else. Crisis needs to do it first. So the global north <laughs> needs to needs to turn off the tap first, but they're not doing it. Some of the some of the biggest fossil fuel developments coming up are happening in the global exactly. north. It's absolutely ridiculous. So we need to be talking about turning off the fossil tap, but also it's not the only thing, right? We need to be guaranteeing land rights and forest rights for communities in the global exactly. south because their lands and forests are, are at stake right now with the whole net zero and carbon markets. It, these big corporations are coming for their resources. So it's, it, it, we, we need to shut off the fossil tap. We need to ensure land rights for people. We need to talk about valuing of care work. I mean, this is such a big change that we're talking about. It isn't just the, it's not just the energy conversation. We're really needing to talk about this bigger picture of system it's change. It's peace and, as well, Dipti. It's it peace is. as well. Edge and I come from two countries. Edge and I come from two countries that are very close to war every summer. We're close <laughs> yeah. to war every summer. Okay. Summer. And our stupid governments, the stupid Greek government, the stupid Turkish government, right, are fighting over the right to extract oil and gas from the Eastern Mediterranean. Okay. So we're going to go to war, killing people, you know, each other, destroying our already suffering economies to extract things that will destroy the planet, things that we neither need nor want. Now, how stupid is that? Um, I mean, the you know, base of... Yanis, yeah. you, uh, you know, you are 
laying out this amazing, you know, system, but it all depends on political power because the system you are talking about requires a power that distributes the riches uh, somehow justly and so on. And there is this urgency uh, situation as well, emergency situation. Uh, you know, both Aruna and Dipti and every, every one of us actually talked about it. Like, we have to do something now. What is to be done now? Uh, and everybody okay. responds to it in a different way. Uh, this urgency, uh, you know, makes people afraid. But some, uh, some people are activated and so on. So I, I was actually wondering how Dipti and Aruna uh, up to a certain degree, uh, would uh, think about that. What now? You know, what to do now? What can people do now? And how do you think you can convince people that they have to do something and they can do something about this? Um, and I think uh, before you go, Aruna yeah. or Deepti, we're going to have to end the show. So I think it's a great way to end the show, okay. to sort of let you let you two speak um, about yeah potential solutions. Because obviously, there's a lot we haven't spoken about. Uh, debt, for example, the fact that... Uh, um, the fact that lower-income countries spend five more times on debt than coping with the impact of climate change. That's, you know, we haven't, we didn't speak really about a potential wealth, wealth tax as well. So, um, you know, we could have like five shows about all this, but it'd be great to hear you too. Um, I don't know who wants yeah. to, you want to start maybe Aruna I, I and Deepti, you yeah. Um, so I just wanted, at least on the on what COPs and what happened there, was the fact that a lot of developing countries and especially least developed countries spoke about the fact that most aid or most climate finance, not aid, um, most climate finance, there there isn't a definition of what that is. Right. And wealthy countries have resisted defining what that is. And the fact that most of this comes as not as grants, but as loans. Um, and when economies are already devastated by COVID, when they're devastated by multiple um, extreme weather events, um, that this should not be coming as loans, but as grants. And that that continues to um, the, the evading of what that should be um, before we even talk about uh, a carbon tax globally coming on like there are these tracks of negotiations has been um, argued for a long time but um, in terms of what comes in in terms of grants um, for states that are battling the worst outcomes um, I think that's something that um, is and will be on the table and then at least one of the other things is of how can you increase ambition before 2030 so I think that that seems to be um, um, and to still have the space to be able to do it, not to be like, okay, we will revisit this later. We will visit this in a um, and and pledge higher later, but to revisit this year on year and be like, okay, this is not a once in a five year plan, um, and we have in the decade that matters the most. So I think one of the good things that maybe came out of COP um, was the fact that you know leaders did feel the pressure. They may have been blah blah blah, um, but by the numbers of pledges, by the numbers of other things, it feels like that um, they were feeling the heat. Um, and I think that that comes from people and that comes from their constituencies. So um, 
yeah, I think that it, it, especially on the question of finance, that that's um, what we need. And um, especially states that are really battling with this, um, that are going to seek um, a much stronger definition to have faith in the process at all. I think for me as well, it really is about people power. It's about movement building. It's about meeting people where they are right now. How can we, we're going to need a lot of people for this movement. And how can we bring people in where they are? What are the issues that they care about? What is it that makes their, them think about their lives and their struggles? And we need to think about solidarity. This is really about connecting struggles. And solidarity means my struggle is your struggle. Your struggle is my struggle. And it's an absolutely important piece of our work because that's how we, that's how we connect humanity, right? It's not going to, system change is not going to be easy. And it's not just about the energy system or the economic system. It is about all of that. It's also about changing our value system. It's about leaving behind this world of greed and profit and competition. And how can we produce a world of cooperation and, you know, that, that humanity? That's what we need to do. Th there's big scale change that we need to make. We need to, this is about democracy and governance structures. In so many of our countries, our democracies are captured. And that's the start. That's why people feel like they don't have a voice because they go make their vote and then what happens to it? You know, what, what, what are the systems of governance showing us? So there are those big changes that we need to make. But at the, so we need this big scale and at the same time, we need the individual one-on-one -on -one scale to make every person feel like your voice is important and you come join us in the struggle and we'll be in solidarity together. Bit by bit, we've got to create that, move, that movement. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take time. It's urgent. And at the same time, it needs to go slow. It needs to go at everybody's pace. So somehow... We've got to go together, go fast. We've got to go slow, bring everyone in. We've got to be at this big scale and we've got to be at this small scale. We just got to keep doing it. It's, you know, center people at the front line, center solidarity, center justice, and let's just do it. Let's do it bit by bit. Here, here, Dipti. Here, here. No more to be said. Nothing Bravo. more to be added. Goodbye. <laughs> well done, Dipti. Yes. So, yeah, nothing more to be added. Uh, well, oops, there you go. <laughs> Roy just disappeared. Uh, I, he got too emotional after your speech, Dipti. <laughs> That's the way he is. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, thanks, thanks, uh, thanks a lot to, to everyone. Um, you know, uh, Aruna, Dipti, I know it was very short, but I, I thought you were both excellent and uh, yeah, he gives you. us. A, a way to, to, to think forward. And um, so uh, thank you, Aruna. Thank you, AJ, for your Thanks first. So Let's talk it over. Uh, thanks, Deepti. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Yanis. No, no, don't to thank everyone us. who's been watching. Or... But Frank, you cannot Sorry? thank us. You cannot thank us. We are the pub together. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Not, uh, okay. not allowed to win the pub. Us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are. Amazing meeting you. Uh, you refreshed. You freshed me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Thank really. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks a lot. I, uh, it's been great to be on. And so to everyone who's watched, you know, feel free to, uh, to like Let's Talk It Over or subscribe to the channel. Uh, we'll be back on soon, um, <laughs> you know, early 2022, uh, I think. And yeah. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> if we survive yeah 
Okay. Thanks, everyone. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks.